super wildcard weekend, more like super boring wildcard weekend, it was a disaster. Not really a disaster. We had, what, six games? Two of them were probably the better ones. Two of them were actually good. The others were basically complete blowouts. It was uh, not the most fun uh, fun watch of football that we've had in, uh, in, in when it comes to the weekends of football that we've had the last 18 weeks, 19 weeks. So super wildcard weekend, maybe, maybe a little disappointing. So we're going to get into all that. We're going to talk about the MLB lockout to the four people out there that actually care about it. We're going to get into all the financials, not all the financials. We're going to break down some of the, some of the, uh, the wants and needs from both sides. We're going to get back into that because they met for the first time since December 1st. And then we're going to break down all the wild card games as well as uh, preview the divisional matchups that are coming up, the four games that are coming up this weekend. And uh, we're going to do all that. But first, let's talk about some Wyoming Cowboy basketball. The Wyoming Cowboy basketball team finally got back into action this weekend after having 20 days off between games due to COVID complications inside the Poke locker room. The Cowboys opened their 2022 conference schedule to match up on the road against Utah State on Saturday, and the Pokes came out on top 71-69 to thanks to a game-winning bucket from Graham Ike with three seconds left in regulation. The Pokes had four players score in double digits. Ike continued uh, right where he left off, leading the team in scoring with 23 points and also grabbed eight rebounds. Guard Hunter Maldonado pitched in as well, uh, scoring another 21 points and collected eight rebounds as well. Drake Jeffries, Jeffries pitched in another 14 points, and Jeremiah Odin put up 11 points in the win as well. The Pokes were able to shoot 52% from the field and nearly 38% from behind the arc. The Cowboy defense played well as well, holding uh, Utah State to a 41% field goal percentage, and the Aggies came into the game averaging a 49% field goal percentage. The Pokes also held the Aggies to just two three-pointers in the second half, and the Cowboys didn't get a long time to celebrate their first win in nearly a month. They had a quick turnaround having to travel down to Reno for a matchup with Nevada on Monday and came out with a win in that one as well, beating the Wolfpack 77-67. Graham Ike had another big game with 24 points for his eighth, eighth 20-point game of the season while also grabbing 11 rebounds for the double-double. And Hunter Maldonado, Maldonado had a uh, double-double as well, pitching in 11 points and 11 assists. Jake, Drake Jeffries was the second-leading scorer, dropping 20 points in 40 minutes. For the Pokes, forward Hunter Maldonado added 10 points off the bench for the, Pokes, for the Pokes in the win as well. The Cowboys will come back home and take on the San Jose State Spartans on Wednesday with tip, with first tip scheduled for 7 p.m. And then they will get a few days off before taking on New Mexico at home on Saturday with first tip scheduled for 5.30 p.m. in that one. And you can listen to those games in every Cowboy basketball game all season long on 1410 a.m. and 106.9 FM at KW. Why? Oh, moving on to cowgirl basketball. The cowgirl basketball team was at home on Saturday and they took on the Air Force Lady Falcons. This game also came down to the wire and the cowgirls were able to sneak out a victory thanks to a game winning layup from Grace Ellis with 2.7 seconds left in the game to put the cowgirls up 56 to 54. Air Force would throw the ball away on the ensuing inbounds pass and then fouled Ellis again, who hit the second free throw to put the game away with a final score of 57 to 54. Allison Fertig, who got the assist on the Grace Ellis uh, game-winning layup, collected her third double-double of the season, scoring 13 points while grabbing a game-high 12 rebounds. McKinley Bradshaw led the way with 20 points overall, led the led the game uh, with 20 points overall. It's her second straight game with 20-plus points and her third time this season. Quinn Weideman chipped in another seven points as well, despite fouling out for just the second time in 100 career games 
with the Cowgirls. The Cowgirls will now hit the road with two more games this week. First on Wednesday, they travel to Boise to take on Boise State with first tip scheduled for 6.30 p.m. in that one. And then they will get a few days off before playing on Saturday on the road against Utah State with first tip scheduled for 2 p.m. in that one. You can listen to those games and all the Cowgirl games all season long on Smart Talk 106.3 FM. Now, before we move into the weekend's NFL playoff games, the MLB and the MLB Players Association met for the first time on on Thursday, January 17th, since the MLB lockout began back on December 2nd. It's the first time that the two uh, two sides discussed economic matters since the work stoppage began, which uh, should mean progress. However, the MLB made an economic proposal during the session, and according to the Athletics' Evan Drellich and uh, ESPN's Jeff Passan, it uh, it was excuse me Jeff Passan that's how you say his name it was not received well according to them by the players association the proposal included raising the minimum salary and making more money available to super two players which are basically a subgroup of players who qualify for arbitration four times rather than the usual three times based on their service time um, another detail proposed was adding draft pick bonuses for teams that don't manipulate the service time of top prospects as well as adjustments to the league's previously proposed draft. Lottery. Now, a deal was never going to be struck on the 17th. They are way too far apart. Um, we don't even know if it's going to happen by opening day at this point. So the 17th seemed like a long shot. This session was basically only happening to reignite, reignite talks once again. And now that the now the question becomes how quickly the Players Association will have to submit a counter proposal. Um, just as a recap here, um, each side this is each side's final economic proposal prior to the lockout, based on multiple reports. Uh, the MLB proposed gradually raising the luxury tra- the luxury tax threshold to $220 million by 2026. The Players Association countered with raising the luxury tax threshold to $245 million. The MLB proposed a pay-for-play arbitration system using wins above replacement, or WAR, as a way to measure a player's total value and free agency for all by the age of 29.5, according to their service time, or, you know, 29 and a half at their age. Uh, the Players Association countered with free agency for all at five years of service time and age 29.5 or six years of service time, whichever comes first. The MLB proposed eliminating draft pick compensation for free agents and the Players Association countered with service time bonuses for all-star game selections, uh, awards, and etc. The MLB proposed an expanded 14-team postseason while the Players Association countered with just a 12-team postseason and finally, the MLB proposed a draft lottery for the top three picks, while the Players Association countered with a draft lottery with a market size component to it as well. Among all that, among all that, the Players Association is also seeking to put more money into the pockets of the younger players who make up an increasingly large, a larger share of the game's player pool. And they're also looking to curb tanking behavior, which we talked about the previous time we talked about. Um, uh, I think that was on the Saturday Sports Report when I first talked about that, but that was way back when we talked about uh, the lockout as well. Maybe it wasn't. I think it was on this podcast. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it was on this podcast. We talked about um, how they wanted to eliminate tanking from the game as it uh, you know, basically increased the amount of people that wanted to lose, and the players definitely do not like, uh, do not like that idea. Uh, whenever the lockout ends, there will need to be another period to wrap up off-season business, including arbitration, the Rule 5 draft, as well as securing visas for players uh, from other countries, and that's not including trades and free agency free agency signings and all that mess. Uh, um, pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report in about one month, and the longer the lockout goes on, the higher 
Uh, the higher the possibility of a delayed start to camp and opening day is March 31st. And that will be the date to watch. Uh, players aren't paid during spring training and spring revenue is a small drop in the metaphorical bucket for, uh, for teams and organizations. It's possible we don't see real progress on a new collective bargaining agreement until regular season paychecks and revenue are actually, you know, on the line. I got a lot of this information from Mike Axisa, uh, Mike's Mike Axisa over at CBS sports who has been writing about the lockout, uh, since it started way back in December. So we uh, make sure to check out his material. If you want even more in-depth information on baseball and, uh, the MLB lockout as a whole, that's uh, Mike Axisa over at CBS sports. He's doing a great job covering the MLB lockout as well as the MLB. So make sure you go check him out if you want, for some reason, if you want more information, because this stuff is mind numbing. It is crazy to look at this stuff from the outside looking in. It doesn't make any sense. But we're going to move on to football, the good stuff. It was super car, super wild card weekend with six games through Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. We will start with the game that started the weekend. The Bengals were at home and got their first playoff win since 1991, defeating the Las Vegas Raiders 26-19. to The win for the Bengals all starts with Joe Burrow, who had another fantastic game, completing 70% of his passes and had zero turnover-worthy plays with an average depth of target or a dot of a 9.3. He only had one big-time throw all game, according to Pro Football Focus, but the Raiders were giving him soft coverage all game, and he was hitting the open throwing windows he had thrived against all season long. Joe Burrow can pick you apart if you're going to sit in soft coverage, a lot like uh, Justin Herbert can or Patrick Mahomes. He is somebody that if you play soft, soft coverage against him, he will pick you apart with the dink and dunks all game long. Uh, Burrow's favorite target all night was Jamar Chase, who was practically unguardable up the sideline. He finished with nine catches for 116 yards with five catches and 84 of those yards coming outside the numbers. He also picked up seven first downs and Burrow completed three 15 plus yard passes when targeting Chase. Uh, the, X the X factor for the Raiders coming into this game was going to be their pass rush against a less than stellar Cincinnati offensive line. However, the Bengals offensive line for the most part held up pretty well. Um, Isaiah Prince, who was Riley Reef's replacement at right tackle, who had the uh, the worst night by far, giving up five pressures and one sack and 36 opportunities. The left side of the line held up pretty well overall for the Bengals, though, with Trey, Han with Trey Hopkins at center, Quentin Spain at left guard, and uh, Jonah Williams at left tackle, allowed just one pressure between the three of them and zero sacks. A very impressive showing for the Bengals O-line against one of the top pass rushing units in the NFL. The Bengals pass rush came into this game as the seventh worst graded unit in the NFL, according to PFF, while the uh, Raiders pass rush came in as the fifth best graded unit in the NFL. However, the Bengals pretty much matched the Raider pass rush most of the night with the Bengals creating 15 pressures, three sacks and 12 hurries, not necessarily a dominant performance by any means, but did enough, just enough to keep the Raiders at bay for most of the game. A big time difference maker in this game for the Bengals was also safety Jesse Bates. The Raiders didn't throw the ball down that field, down the field very much, and that was thanks in part to Bates' coverage downfield. Downfield, he was uh, targeted twice, but broke up both passes while making two tackles as well. He was also responsible for uh, two tackles and two assisted tackles in run defense. He probably wasn't necessarily aggressive enough against the run with his average depth of tackle against the run coming at about 11 yards, but he made up for it with zero missed tackles against the run. What really swung this game for the Bengals was a couple of fourth down decisions by the Raiders, as well as Derek Carr's inability to push to, to push the ball uh, downfield. He really Kirk Cousins did, as they like to say. 
Uh, Derek Carr wasn't nearly as efficient as Burrow was. He completed just 53% of his passes, and he had an adjusted completion percentage of 50% on passes thrown 10 to 19 yards downfield. He also completed one pass 20 yards downfield on three attempts. Uh, 21 of uh, Carr's 29 completions came short of the first down marker or behind the line of scrimmage. It wasn't a terrible performance by any means from Derek Carr, but the lack of aggressiveness hurt his team by the end of the game for sure. Uh, closing out this game with probably the most important decisions during the game. The Raiders had two very obvious go for it situations on fourth down in this game. The first came early in the first quarter, which you can, you can make up for later in the game. Uh, both, but both teams were tied zero to zero with nine twenty eight left in the first quarter. The Raiders had a fourth and three from the Bengals. 28, a field goal attempt from there, gave the Raiders a 31% win probability while giving, uh, while going for it, gave them an extra 1.7 percentage points in win probability up to about 33%. Not totally egregious, but would have definitely liked to see the Raiders come out uh, more aggressive and a field goal on fourth and three on the opponent's 28 is uh, not really that. That's kind of the key to this game. The aggressive, the lack of aggressiveness from the Raiders as a whole when it, when it comes to throwing the ball downfield, not wanting to exceed the short throws of zero to nine yards downfield and try to get into the immediate intermediate part of the field and the 20-plus yard deep throws. They just weren't really all there, and then the lack of aggressiveness on fourth down really kind of cost the Raiders a chance to win this game, and it was too little too late by the time uh, by the time they were drive, driving on the uh, the final position of the game. Um, the egregious fourth down mistake came in the fourth quarter. This time, the Bengals are leading 26-16 to with 3.37 left in regulation. The Raiders have the ball with another fourth and three, but this time it's from the Cincinnati 10-yard line. A field goal attempt and successful field goal keeps their win probability at about 6%, while going for it boosted their win percentage to 8%, and a successful fourth down conversion jumped it all the way to 16%. The Raiders elected to kick the field goal, and even though the 28-yarder was good, the game was basically over after that, giving the ball back to the Bengals, and um, the Raiders did get another possession after this, but instead of having to kick a field goal on the final possession, they had to try to drive down the field and score a touchdown which completely changes the complexity of the game. Um, It was one of the better games of the weekend, and the Bengals will now move on to take on the one-seeded Tennessee Titans on the road in Nashville at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday. After the Bengals-Raiders game came one of the more disappointing games of the weekend when the Bills blew out, depending on which side you're on, uh, when the Bills blew out the New England Patriots 47-17. I was hoping we would get more of a competitive game than this, uh, given these two teams were only separated by eight points combined in their previous two matchups during the regular season. Um, but let's start with this. The Bills literally played the NFL's first ever statistically perfect offensive game. They had no punts, no interceptions, no fumbles lost, no field goals, and touchdowns on every single offensive drive until the kneel downs to end the game. Literally a perfect offensive game. That's statistically, like I'm not making that up, that's just a, st- a statistical perfect game from uh, the Bills, and it's the first one ever, according to the NFL. Uh, the difference in this matchup was clearly Bills quarterback Josh Allen. He was unfreaking believable on Saturday, going 21 for 25 for 308 yards and five touchdowns, while also adding 66 yards on the ground as well. He went for four, he went four for four on passes, 20 plus yards down the field for 141 yards, a touchdown, and a 31.8 yard. Average depth of target on those passes. A completely unreal game, especially throwing the ball downfield like that. He was also perfect in the intermediate part of the field, going 6-for-6 six six on passes 10-19 to 19 yards out with three touchdowns and in a 15-yard 
a dot as well. Allen finished the game with three big time throws, according to PFF, zero turnover worthy plays and an a dot of about 10 yards on all his passes. It was easily one of the best games he's had as a pro and probably the best individual performance of the weekend. And if he can replicate that just two thirds of that performance, the bills can really, they can beat and they will beat pretty much anybody. Uh, Allen's favorite target of the night was tight end Dawson Knox who also had a phenomenal game. He caught all five targets for 89 yards and two touchdowns. He caught two balls, 20 plus yards downfield at an A dot of 24.5 yards and had another two receptions. His two touchdowns, 10 to 19 yards down the field with an average depth of target of 14.5 yards. The Bills offensive line also held up pretty well against the Patriots pass rush. Pass rush. Um, the Bills allowed just six pressures, six hurries, and zero sacks on 29 pass blocking opportunities in this game. The Patriots didn't grade too well in the pass rush this uh, coming into this game, but uh, Buffalo snuffed out any sort of momentum that the Pats could have gained from a sack or a TFL um, on the offensive line. Uh, if there was a weakness for the Bills in this game, it was their pass coverage from their linebackers. The Bills run a 4-2-5 defensive scheme, meaning they usually have two linebackers in at any given time, usually both middle linebackers. Uh, Matt Milano and Tremaine Edmonds took up those roles, and they were both targeted 14 times total. Milano gave up four receptions for 17 yards with an average depth of target of 2.4 yards and 4.3 yards per reception. So a pretty decent game in coverage for Milano, keeping a lot of those plays in front of him. Um, Edwards, however, though, did not have as good of a day. He, he gave up uh, six receptions on seven targets for 81 yards for an average depth of target of 5.3 and 13.5 yards per reception and was responsible for the second longest play of the day from the Pats. I'm really nitpicking at this point um, because after the first quarter, the Bills basically had this game in hand and uh, Micah, Hyde, Micah Hyde and Levi Wallace both hauled in interceptions in the secondary, but linebacker coverage will be something opposing teams should be able to exploit, especially against a good quarterback like Patrick Mahomes and not like Mac Jones, who's a rookie, but you know, he'll get better, but he's not Patrick Mahomes. Um, on the opposite side, this game was really shifted on its head in the first quarter because of Mac Jones's ineffectiveness to pass the ball. Um, in the first quarter, he finished with just a 33.3% completion rate on six and a half yards per attempt and a 17.4 passer rating. He leveled out as the game went on, but uh, then the Bills were pretty much already in command of the outcome uh, of the outcome in this one after the first quarter and approaching the half. Uh, the Patriots had also dominated in the run game in their previous win against the Bills when it was super windy and Mac Jones threw the ball like three times. They dominated the run game in that one, but uh, this one was not the case. Um, in this matchup, Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson split carries evenly, but neither could find many holes with Harris finishing with 30 yards on nine carries and one first down. Well, Stevenson gained 27 yards on eight carries with two first downs. Uh, they also basically had to abandon all semblance of a run game after the Bills jumped out to their big lead in the first half. It was a literal perfect game for Buffalo offensively and nearly a perfect game overall in the win. And if they want to reach the AFC Championship game, they will need to replicate it. another solid game plan because in the divisional round, they hit the road to take on the Chiefs at Arrowhead on Sunday at 4.30. Jumping to Sunday now, the first game of the day was another disappointing one. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers were at home and dominated the Philadelphia Eagles 31-15. to Tom Brady was uh, on fire and the skill guys on offense rolled while the uh, Bucs defense suffocated the Eagles offense all game long. This one was effectively over by halftime, and the only issues the Bucs were concerned with towards the end of the game were uh, the injuries that they had suffered on the offensive line. Tom Brady was ruthlessly efficient, ruthlessly efficient, finishing with an adjusted completion percentage of 89%, almost 90%, carving up the Eagles with an average depth of target of just 
4.9 yards downfield and got the ball out of his hands in about 2.2 seconds on average. Brady's job got a little harder when the offensive line started getting banged up and they turned to the bench. Um, but Brady ended up getting Brady did, did end up getting sacked four times, but for the most part, he did a good job of mitigating those problems and neutralizing any threat from the Eagles' defensive line. Mike Evans was Brady's favorite target all game long, catching nine passes on ten targets for 117 yards and a touchdown. Evans was a menace outside the numbers, catching eight pa- eight of his nine passes down the sideline and had an average depth of target of about eight yards downfield the Bucks run defense did a decent job uh, against the the Eagles explosive rush rush offense which um, the Eagles the Eagles rush offense basically got them into the playoffs they combined for eight stops against the run though and uh, safety Jordan Whitehead was a missile early on against the run collecting three stops of his own at an average depth of tackle uh, of just 2.5 yards a gain of 2.5 yards for a safety that's a very good job against the run Nobody really stood out on the defensive end overall for the Bucks. They did a really good job as a team holding the uh, holding the Eagles, you know, keeping the Eagles at bay, especially in the run. And uh, the big culprit of this game for the Eagles was quarterback Jalen Hurts. Hurts has uh, outperformed a lot of expectations this season, but uh, this was a game that raises questions about how far he has to go and how good he can actually be as a passer when the team faces better opposition. Hurts did throw for 258 yards and a touchdown. But uh, he threw five turnover-worthy plays, two of which became interceptions, and finished with an adjusted completion percentage of just 60%. He did have an average depth of target of 11.7, but a high A dot with that many turnover-worthy plays just makes it uh, more. It makes it look more reckless. Um, Hertz only completed five of his five passes of his 21 attempts, 10 plus yards downfield, with most of his completions coming behind the line of scrimmage or short of the first down marker. Uh, the Eagles' ground game had been propelling this team to success this season, but against the Bucks, it was stamped out. First led the team in carries and yards, and the team tallied just three first downs on the ground all game long. One positive out of this game for the Eagles was their pass rush. Once the Bucks' offensive line got banged up, the uh, Eagles' defensive line was uh, was able to have some significant su- significant success, notching up four sacks uh, total and eleven pressures. Tom Brady and the Bucks. March on. They march on again and will now play the Los Angeles Rams at home on Sunday with kickoff scheduled for 1.05 p.m. Moving on to Sunday afternoon, by far the most talked about game during the Super Bowl, the Super Wild Card weekend slate. The San Francisco 49ers traveled to Dallas and upset the Cowboys 23-17. The Dallas Cowboys tried to mount a comeback, but it was too little too late for a Cowboy team that could not stop shooting itself in the foot. Jimmy G didn't have a banner day at the quarterback position for the 49ers. He went 16 for 25 for 172 yards with no touchdowns and one pick. Um, He recorded one big time throw right before halftime, but it was also responsible for two turnover worthy plays. One of which was a bad interception while the game was coming down to the wire. Um, The real X factor in this one for the Niners was Debo Samuel. The dude's insane. He continues to be this offense's superhuman, and in this game, it was what he did on the ground that affected the outcome of this game. He rushed the ball 10 times as a wide receiver for 72 yards, forcing three missed tackles, while also bringing in three receptions for another 38 yards. His versatility is and was a nightmare for the Cowboys to try and defend. A rather disappointing aspect of the Niners game was their offensive line play, um, which was surprising. What is undoubtedly one of the best offensive lines in football had a tough game against the Cowboys pass rush, allowing nine pressures and seven hurries to two QB hits on just 25 dropbacks. 
They were better in the run game with with Trent Williams continuing to have one of the greatest seasons in the history of the left tackle position, according to Pro Football Focus. But Jimmy G cannot get pressured like that every game if they want to make it back to the big one, the Super Bowl. Um, the eyes of the football world will be uh, on the injury situation with Niner linebacker Fred Warner. Their defense goes as Warner goes, and it is not a coincidence that the Cowboys finally started to move the ball after after Fred Warner went down with an injury at the linebacker position. Um, moving on to the Cowboys, this loss all starts. It all starts with the lack of discipline on this team. They were penalized a ridiculous 14 times, with five coming against the defensive line alone, including a couple of massive defensive holding, claw, uh, holding calls that extended Niner drives literally all day long. The game management from head coach Mike McCarthy was also a mess, especially towards the end of the game, as it has been all season long. That is not news to Cowboys fans. Mike McCarthy is a problem when it comes to managing games down the end of the, uh, managing time and timeouts towards the end of the stretch of games. And that's just been what Mike McCarthy has done all season long. Both offensive coordinator Kellen Moore and McCarthy are responsible for the final play debacle with 14 seconds left from the Niner 41 to call a QB draw there and try to spike the ball after you call a QB draw is asinine. It is insanity from the 41 With 14 seconds left, you've got at least two chances for Hail Marys. At least two chances. At the very least, you can throw a couple out routes, get CeeDee Lamb in space, throw him an out route, get him up four, but a draw, a QB draw with 14 seconds left. It's, it doesn't make any sense. A draw makes zero sense. And the referees did the right thing in that situation, by the way. Cowboys fans have literally nothing to be mad at. They're screaming at, they're the angry guy screaming at a cloud. Every coach in the NFL, except for McCarthy, I guess, knows the rule. There can't be a snap until an official has touched the ball to confirm and or adjust the spot. Instead, Prescott handed the ball to his center, who put the ball on the ground at about the 24-yard line, and umpire Ramon George had to push through the Cowboy offensive line to get the ball in order to set it, costing valuable seconds and essentially ending the game. Um, it was entirely the fault of the Cowboys from the risky play call with no timeouts remaining to Prescott's inability to hand the ball to an official. Cowboys fans should be angry at the incompetence of their head coach and offensive coordinator in that situation and the referees who did exactly what they would be expected to do in that situation. Cowboy, Cowboy fans are yelling at an angry, they're angry yelling at a cloud. They should be angry at their own team, not the referees in that situation. And never in that situation. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, but enough of that final play. Let's talk about how we got here. How did we get here? How did the Cowboys lose this game? Well, let's go back to Prescott. He looked all the way out of whack at the quarterback position game, all out of whack all game at the quarterback position right up until the final play. He only completed 53% of his passes while throwing for 24 yards, what, excuse me, 224 yards with a touchdown and a pick. He did have two big-time throws, but he also had three turnover-worthy plays and an adjusted completion percentage of 64%. Um, He completed just nine of 18 passes, 10-plus yards down the field. So 50% of his passes, 10-plus yards down the field. Not a great recipe for success um, from your quarterback, for sure. Especially Dak Prescott, who can sling the ball all over the field. For him to throw nine of 18 from 10-plus yards downfield, that is uh, not a great sign. Uh, The offensive line for the Cowboys had a pretty bad day as well. They allowed 16 pressures, 10 hurries, and 4 sacks on 51 dropbacks. Left tackle Tyron Smith had an uncharacteristically bad game as well. Coming into this game, Smith had allowed just 11 pressures all regular season, and he allowed 6 in this game alone with one ending in a sack as well. 
The line as a whole was penalized six times. The offensive line as a whole was penalized six times in this one as well. The wait for the Cowboys to reach an NFC Championship game will take up to 27 years after another flameout in the postseason, and the Niners will move on and will travel to Green Bay to take on the one-seeded Packers on Saturday with kickoff scheduled for 6.15 p.m. in that one. The nightcap Sunday night was another blowout. Tack it onto the list. Kansas City Chiefs were at home, and after a slow start, um, they dismantled the Pittsburgh Steelers. The game started exactly how the Steelers wanted, jumping out to a 7-0 lead thanks to a defensive touchdown. But uh, from that point forward, it became a game everyone expected to see with the Chiefs scoring seven touchdowns to make it a 42-21 drumming by the Kansas City Chiefs. After the slow start, the Chiefs put together another masterful performance, passing the ball. The team as a whole generated generated a 0.5 uh, EPA per pass play. And uh, Patrick Mahomes did his usual thing, carving up the Steelers' defense. On throws where he averaged two and a half seconds or less, Mahomes went 23 for 24 for 220 yards and four touchdowns and had two big-time throws and zero turnover-worthy plays. On throws where he had 2.6 seconds long or longer to throw, he went 9 for 17 for 192 yards with one touchdown and one interception. He did struggle under pressure going 2 for 7 for 43 yards, but when he had time to throw, he was nearly perfect. Um, his dot, his average depth of target was lower than we are used to seeing, hovering around 6 yards, but that's because he threw the ball short and behind the line of scrimmage a lot with 26 of his attempts coming short of the sticks or behind the line of scrimmage. He was dumping the ball off to his playmakers, and a lot of the time, they were making plays. Um, when he did throw the ball downfield, he was solid, completing 7 of 11 passes, 10-plus yards down the field for 194 yards and three touchdowns, and uh, he had four big-time throws in those situations as well. Mahomes dumped the ball off to a bunch of different receivers with eight different chief receivers registering a reception. Mahomes' favorite target was his security blanket tight end, Travis Kelsey, who hauled in five receptions on seven targets for 108 yards and a touchdown. Running back Jarek McKinnon had the most receptions with six for 81 yards and a touchdown as well. Wide receiver McColl Hardman was an underneath weapon. His average depth of targets stood at one yard downfield, but he produced 39 yards after the catch, breaking three tackles on four receptions, but also had a 41-yard reception towards the end of the third quarter that set up their final touchdown of the game. The Chiefs' pass rush was basically negated because of Big Ben. Uh, because of Big Ben, he um, he only had two seconds to throw. That he averaged about two seconds to throw each time he stepped back. Um, the front seven only produced five pressure, five pressures as a group, with the left defensive tackle producing three of them and getting a sack. Linebacker Willie Gay Jr. probably had the best day for the Chiefs. Uh, best day for the Chiefs' defense, especially in coverage, allowing two receptions on three targets for just two yards and was awarded two stops on both those receptions, also forcing a fumble in that small sample as well. Other than Willie Gay, though, it was kind of a similar situation that the Bucks were in where the defense didn't play exceptionally well on any front, really. It was more the opposing quarterback who played less than stellar, and that brings us to Big Ben. The game, This game was pretty much an epitome of what Big Ben, uh, Ben Roethlisberger, has become. The soon-to-be 40-year-old has become the quintessential Dink and dunk passer getting the ball out swiftly while hardly threatening the secondary downfield. He completed just five passes out of 14 attempts, throwing the ball 10-plus yards downfield, two of which did go for touchdowns, but he also threw two turnover-worthy plays in those. Um, the rest of his outing consisted of throwing it short of the first down marker with 25 of his 44 passing attempts coming short of the sticks with an average depth of target of just 2.9 yards downfield while throwing two turnover-worthy plays on those attempts as well. The rest of the offense struggled as well, though. Running back Najee Harris had a negative yard. They, he had negative yards before getting contact. 
So he was still in the backfield on average before he got hit for the first time. Um, wide receiver Deontay Johnson dropped two targets and saw one less than uh, less than one yard per route run, despite seeing 10 targets on 41 routes. His receiving partner, Juju Smith-Schuster, returned to the field, but was also largely ineffective. He got eight targets, also dropped a pass, didn't convert any significant yards after, ca- after the catch, picking up just 13 yards after the catch on five receptions. You can't have many positives on a defense that gave up 42 points for the Steelers, but the shining star on that side of the ball was TJ Watt. He was gifted a scoop and score, the first score of the game, and uh, made one of the best plays of the night for Pittsburgh on a batted pass that Devin Bush, Devin Bush picked off for, a, uh, for an interception. And along with that, Watt generated five total pressures, with one being a sack as well. Um, the Steelers obviously struggled in coverage all game. Their, their starting secondary gave up 20 receptions on 23 targets for 258 yards, 110 yards after the catch, and missed four tackles and didn't notch a single forced incompletion. It was a tough day for the, for the, uh, for the Steelers secondary, and uh, Patrick Mahomes basically picked them apart all game long. Uh, the blowout for Kansas City moves them on to the divisional round, and they will take on the Buffalo Bills at home in one of the more intriguing matchups of the divisional round on Sunday with kickoff scheduled for 4.30 p.m. Finally, wrapping up the wild card weekend, the Arizona Cardinals went on the road Monday night and they got stomped by the Los Angeles Rams 34 to 11. The Rams built a big lead early on behind a Matthew Safford and the uh, and the offense's efficient play in addition to the defense's ability to pressure and force Kyler Murray into several costly mistakes, pushed the Rams into the divisional round. Stafford played a pretty solid game, not having to throw the ball too much, finishing with just 17 attempts on the night. But he managed to avoid the catastrophic mistakes that he had that had uh, that has plagued him that had plagued him this season so far. Um, he went five for seven on throws, ten plus yards down the field, with one big time throw and one turnover worthy play. He also shredded the Cardinals' defense over the middle of the field, like shredded them, going seven for eight on throws between the numbers. And his only incompletion came from a dropped pass. This was probably Odell Beckham Jr.'s best game since joining the Rams as well. He hauled in all four of his targets for 54 yards and a touchdown. So not, you know, not, not, not something incredibly shining, but it was definitely, he, I mean, he was a force out there. He probably played a better game than Cooper cup did, even though Cooper cup had like seven targets and five receptions. He also, he also, uh, Beckham also registered a catch in traffic while grabbing for uh, three first, first downs on three of his four receptions with the other catch being his touchdown. Stafford's Stafford was able to uh, spread around, to the other receivers as well, with Cooper Cup getting a modest, modest five receptions on seven targets for 61 yards and a touchdown as well. And uh, tight end Tyler Higby also hauled in three catches on four targets for 46 yards as well. The changing port for the Rams in this game was their stout defense, especially at the beginning of the game and up front. The Ram defensive line seemed to rattle Kyler Murray all game long, and Aaron Donald was an absolute menace up front rushing the passer. He finished with four total pressures and a sack and won nearly 30% of his pass rush attempts against the Cardinals offensive line, which is an absurd number. 30% winning 30% on as many pass rush attempts as he had is that's, that's a feat. He's um, he's a monster. The dude's a bulldozer. Uh, the coverage downfield for the Rams was also a big part of their victory. The starting secondary allowed just 10 receptions on 18 targets with linebacker Troy reader, getting the brunt of the beating, allowing five receptions on five targets for 52 yards. But the two starting cornerbacks and safeties allowed just two receptions all game long on three targets. For the Cardinals, like I was saying, quarterback Kyler Murray looked uncomfortable all game long against the Rams, against the Rams defense. Um, He started to settle in a little bit after halftime, but after that point, the game was pretty much decided. 
Um, in the first half, Murray's average time to throw was about 3.1 seconds, and he was pressured on 47% of his dropbacks because of it. Murray was terrible under pressure, going 4 for 12 for 12 yards and an interception, and one that turned into a touchdown as well, a pick six. Um, the offensive line for the Cardinals was absolutely dreadful in this game as well, and their struggles in the line in both the pass and the run were key factors in the loss. The O-line allowed 14 pressures on 37 opportunities. That's nearly 40% of the time they were allowing pressure, also giving up a pair of sacks as well. Arizona's defensive line didn't fare much better, forcing just one sack, one sack on the day, and they're starting, uh, they're starting pass rushers, not just one pressure all game, with backup outside linebacker Marcus Golden providing the most pressures with two. Their coverage downfield was largely ineffective as well. The starting secondary allowed 13 receptions on 16 targets for 226 yards and two touchdowns without forcing a single incompletion and just two total stops in the passing game. The Rams were basically able to do whatever they wanted for most of this game, and uh, the win sets them up with a road trip to the defending champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Sunday at 1.05 p.m. Okay. So, after all of that, all of our divisional matchup, all of that, all of our, all of our wild card weekend matchups, that sets up our divisional matchups. They are now officially set. Our first game comes on Saturday at 2.30 p.m. when the Bengals travel down to Nashville to take on the Titans. The Bengals come in riding high after ending their 31-year playoff route, and they come in featuring one of the league's most potent offenses. They lost star defensive end Trey Hendrickson due to concussion in the Raiders game, but according to reports coming out Tuesday afternoon, he should be on track to clear concussion protocols and be back by Saturday, which would be a huge get for the Bengals in this game. Uh, the Titans got the weekend off thanks to having the one seed in the bye. Uh, despite losing their star player Derrick Henry about halfway through the season, head coach Mike Vrabel was able to right the ship, and they finished 12-5 and behind a still effective run game and a defense that was one of the best at limiting scoring. However, they rank 25th against the pass, which is a uh, bad sign against Burrow and company when they come to town. There have been signs that Henry could return in this game. Derrick Henry could return in this game. And if he does, this will completely fit this game on this head, on its head. Um, however, if he doesn't come back, the, and Bengals head coach Zach Taylor continues to let Burrow cook. And I actually like the Bengals in this one. I like them to upset the Titans in this one. Uh, the betting market likes the Titans as three point three and a half point favorites as of Tuesday afternoon, which I think is pretty high given what we've seen from the Bengals these past few weeks. After that game, we get the Saturday nightcap of the San Francisco 49ers traveling to Green Bay to take on the one-seeded Packers with kickoff scheduled for 6.15 p.m. This matchup has a ton of playoff history attached to it. It will be their ninth time meeting in the playoffs since 1995. They also played in uh, one of the more entertaining games of the regular season this year back in week three. Green Bay led 17-7 in that game at halftime before needing a last-minute drive to pull out a 30-28 win at Levi Stadium in uh, San Francisco. The uh, Niners will come into this game riding high as well after upsetting the Cowboys in the first round, but they don't have anybody to really match Aaron Rodgers or Devontae Adams' uh, effectiveness on the Packers' side. Not to mention, the Niners' secondary has struggled against the pass nearly all season long, and that is a recipe for disaster against somebody like Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams. The betting market has the Packers favored by five and a half as of Tuesday afternoon, and I would uh, tail that spread all the way to six and a half. I see the Packers winning handily on a cold evening in Green Bay. That takes us to Sunday, and the first game of the day will be the Rams traveling to Tampa to take on the Buccaneers with kickoff scheduled for 1 p.m. This one will rely on, in, on the injury status of the offensive line for the Buccaneers. Tom Brady has won nine straight divisional round games the longest such streak in any single playoff round in NFL history, but even the GOAT 
cannot dodge bad injury timing. Their right tackle, Tristan Wirfs, was in a boot as of Monday, and the Bucks said that they were going to wait and see if he and starting center Ryan Jensen can play against the Rams in the divisional round. However, they aren't expected to practice until Friday at the earliest, and if they can't go, uh, that would be two huge losses up front for the Bucks, especially since the Rams have the perfect formula that has caused Brady problems in the past with pressure up the middle and the lack of a need to blitz him on defense. If the Rams want to pull off a big-time upset in this one, quarterback Matt Stafford will also need to avoid those kind of catastrophic mistakes like the pick, six, pick sixes and uh, the bad interceptions overall. The betting market likes the Buccaneers by three as of Tuesday afternoon, but it looks like it's going to drop to two and a half. If neither Worfs or Jensen plays, one, that spread is going to change drastically if neither of those guys can play. Um, but I actually like the Rams in this one. I think LA has enough up front to cause problems for Brady and the Bucks if they're not at full strength. Um, but if those two guys do come back and are somewhat healthy and uh, back at full strength, then I think the Bucks will win this one in a close in a close matchup. But as of right now, it doesn't look like Worfs or Jensen are going to play. So I think LA has the chance to actually win this, and I actually think they can, they will win this if uh, Worfs or Jensen don't play. Uh, finally, Sunday, if Sunday evening, we get the game that everyone is excited for, especially up here in the great state of Wyoming. The Buffalo Bills travel to Kansas City to take on the Chiefs with kickoff schedule for 4:30 p.m. It's a rematch of last year's AFC Championship game, and also between two teams that had, uh, and also between two teams that scored. They combined 89 points in their wildcard wins. They split their last two matchups with the Chiefs winning the AFC Championship game last year, and then the Bills dominated the Chiefs back in Week 5 earlier this season. This is a different Chiefs team than it was back in Week 5, though. Let's get that right off of the bat. They've been red hot, finishing the regular season 9-1, and and their defense has forced opposing quarterbacks to throw more interceptions than touchdowns in that time span. The Bills are coming off one of the best playoff performances of all time, though, and they got all their touchdowns on play-action plays in that one. And the Chiefs struggle mightily against play-action, having given up the third-most passing yards against play-action and an NFL-best 80.2 QBR. Uh, the betting market has the Chiefs favored by two points as of Tuesday afternoon, basically thanks to home-field advantage. That's kind of the, the swing when it comes to home-field advantage is two points. Um, but this one is a toss-up to me. These are maybe the two most evenly matched teams in the NFL on both sides of the ball. My betting money is staying well away from uh, from this game, no matter what. You, I mean, not no matter what. If somebody gets hurt, then obviously you know put some money on there. But uh, you know, if you're going to be betting spreads, I would uh, I would stay away from this one. Maybe look for prop bets in this one. Um, I will say I like the Chiefs slightly in this one, only because of the maturity of their defense and their offense has definitely gotten a lot better at taking what is given to them given to them throughout the game. Um, but it would not be shocking if the Bills won this one either. So that's it. There you go. Your massive divisional round preview. Here's to hoping that this week's games are more entertaining to watch than last week because Super Wildcard Weekend was super disappointing. That was a play on words. Um, that's going to end it. That's going to wrap things up for me, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode. Um, thank you for waiting till Tuesday because that was a lot to kind of type up and kind of put together. Um, I think we're going to continue to start putting them on Tuesdays from here on out. So. Instead of Mondays, maybe take a peek, um, make a, take a peek for them on Tuesdays instead of Monday afternoons. Tuesday just gives me a little bit more time to kind of delve into more of the research and the more information, more of the box scores and stuff like that, and get a lot of the stats. And it's not as much, it's not as chaotic as it is on a Monday. So uh, look for it now on Tuesdays uh, for the podcast now on Tuesdays, um, 
and you can find this one and all the other podcasts on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, as well as podcastwyoming.com and sheridanmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to start posting them on Tuesdays uh, from here on out, I believe. But that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. I have been your host, James Timberlake, and you have been listening to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast.